We live in a society that encourages discontent at every turn. We are constantly told that what we have is not enough. We need more. Whether it's the latest phone with the best camera, a new car with that new car smell, the latest fashions, gadgets, gizmos, whatever it is, some voice is always saying that we will not be happy until we have their product. I was curious about it. So I, uh, I was curious about how much companies spend uh, to tell us we won't be happy until we buy their stuff. So I did what you always do when you have a question like that. I Googled it, punched in advertising budget for leading company, something like that. And a lot came up. I won't tell you everything I found. Uh, there's all kinds of statistics about this, but you might be interested to know one of them. General Motors. Some of us probably drive uh, Chevys or other cars produced by GM. General Motors, since 2012, has spent $3 billion a year in advertising. Now, you do the math real quick, 2012 to 2018, you're pushing $20 billion in the last six years or so. $20 billion on commercials and billboards and Facebook ads, all to tell us that we are not living the life till we have one of their trucks. Imagine what you could do with $20 billion. <laughs> Imagine how many starving people could have hope for a meal. Imagine how many homeless folks along the coast could regain some security. Imagine how many missionaries we could fund for life. $20 billion. That's just in six years. Our discontent is magnified by social media. Now, let me be clear, because you might be thinking, I woke up this morning and the preacher was putting stuff on Facebook about church. So it can be used in good ways in some times. We use it, it's helpful for advertising, things like that. But a lot of good things can be used for unhealthy things as well, and so we want to be attentive to that. And oftentimes, social media, whether it's a Facebook or a Twitter or an Instagram or some other platform that I am too out of touch to know about, pulls us in and immerses us in this digital world where we are surrounded by pictures and updates that inherently invite us to compare ourselves with everyone else. Usually, the comparison is a negative one for us. So you get up in the morning, and maybe a couple of you aren't pulled into this world, and if you're not, bless you. <laughs> the rest of us are struggling with you to our phones. But you wake up in the morning, and your phone's by the nightstand, so you open up whatever it is you open up first grab a cup of coffee, and sit down to see what everybody's been up to for the last few hours while you've been asleep. And 
And along the way, you discover that someone else has one of those new trucks we were talking about that Chevy was advertising. And you think, well, my life isn't as good as their life because I don't have one of those. And then a little while later, you scroll on and you find out that there was a party. Big get-together. Everybody in town was there, but you didn't get an invitation to that one. Well, all of a sudden, I don't feel like my friends are quite as friendly as they were before I was looking at this. And somebody else, their kid has won some scholarship. Why didn't my kid get the scholarship? And we are invited to compare, and everybody else puts their best life on Facebook. Not their real life. <laughs> right? Occasionally someone will put it on there. Me and my spouse just had it out, and we usually wonder, maybe they need to go see somebody. Um, but typically it's the good stuff, not the you know, fights you have with your kids that you're putting on Facebook. And so people put their best life out there, not an authentic version of themselves, not their real life. It's the version that they want to sell to everybody else. And this is what we do, isn't it? And it inherently compels us to begin comparing ourselves. And we discover that our lives aren't what we want them to be because they're not like that other person's life. The statistics show, interestingly, do with this what you want. I'm just going to throw it out there. This affects women more than it does men. But there are studies that show this is a real thing and it leads people to depression and cultivates discontent. Something to think about. Teenagers have grown up in a world where if you don't get enough likes on your latest profile picture, your status in the halls of your school declines. That is serious, serious stuff. So those platforms can be used for lots of helpful things, but we need to be aware of the dangers, and they cultivate discontent. I'm not happy. I'm not satisfied with my life. I've I'm, 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 I don't have what they have. I don't have what I need. I don't have what will make me happy. Good news for us is the problem of discontent is nothing new. And we know that because Paul wrote about it 2,000 years ago in this letter to the Philippians. What's interesting is that he claims to have found the secret to defeating discontent and finding contentment satisfaction. He claims to have found the secret. And we're saying, you know, Paul, what is it? What's the secret? What's, what do we do? What do we need? And it's not really complicated. In fact, it's quite simple, even though it is stunningly difficult. Simple to say, difficult to do. For Paul, the bottom line, straightforward, clear as day, what's the secret to contentment? Paul would say, brothers and sisters, it's easy. Maybe not easy, but straightforward. Trust everything you've got that Christ has everything you need. And you'll discover contentment. That's the bottom line. Trust everything you've got that Christ has everything you need and you will find contentment in him. 
Now let's talk about contentment. It helps to define our terms. Be clear, we're all on the same page. What are we talking about when we talk about contentment? When Paul talks, you know, if you want to focus in on the central verse, he talks about it in chapter 4, verse 11 of Philippians. Not that I'm referring to being in need, right? And remember where the guy is. He's in prison. He is locked up because he's been preaching the gospel, and now he's in captivity. Not that I'm referring to being in need, for I've learned to be content with whatever I have. I know what it is to have little. I know what it is to have plenty. In any and all circumstances, I've learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, of having plenty, of being in need. I know the secret. And then he says in verse 13, that well-known verse, I can do all things through him, through Christ who strengthens me. And that's the piece there. You see, Paul is trusting that Jesus has everything he needs to survive and to make it. Jesus is sufficient. Jesus has everything I need. And here's Paul in chains, locked up. And all of his energy is given to trusting that Jesus has everything he requires. Everything he needs. So contentment, if we're going to give it a definition, is about being satisfied with the circumstances in which God has placed us. Satisfaction. That's what it's about. And notice how that language of satisfaction comes up again and again in the text. Paul says in verse 18, I'm fully satisfied. And that idea just reverberates all through this passage. I've got what I need. I'm satisfied. I'm content. I've learned the secret. And his name is Jesus. And he's sufficient in every way. I have what I need. I have more than enough, Paul says. Because Jesus gives me strength. So contentment is this being satisfied with where we are, with where God has us, with what God has given us. And that's a question we all need to be asking. Am I satisfied? Am I satisfied? Or do I want more? It might be an interesting experiment to just take a piece of paper, mark out the hours on the day, and begin recording levels of satisfaction and levels of wanting more. Am I satisfied with my workplace or do I want something different am I satisfied with where I live or do I need to get out want am I satisfied with a marriage or am I tempted to look for something more outside the boundaries <coughs> Am I satisfied with where God has me in this moment? Even if the circumstances are not what I would pick or as desirable as I might choose. I'm pretty sure when Jesus called Paul, the Roman prison probably wasn't in the forefront of his thoughts. 
And yet here he is. And he can say, I'm satisfied. I'm satisfied with where the Lord has me. And the thing we see with Paul, because Paul learned this from experience, I think it's evident from the text. Right? Because he says, I've learned the secret to, of contentment, which suggests that maybe there was a time where he didn't know the secret. <laughs> maybe he was struggling. Maybe he was, you know, here I am and I'm not feeling satisfied and Lord, I need you to do something in me. I don't feel good about it. And that helps us see that contentment is an emotion. You can feel really bad about your circumstances. Emotions come and emotions go. Contentment, the way Paul thinks about it, is a discipline. It takes work. It takes discipline to develop the discipline of satisfaction with where Christ has us and not chasing after every last fad that comes along that's out there with billions of dollars being spent to tempt us towards it. And that's striking, friends, because we need to... I mean, this, this, this reality of the discipline is punctuated when we think about the resources that are put towards distracting us. I mean, if there's a company that's willing to spend $3 billion this year to get your attention on something that they're selling, you better be disciplined with eyes on Jesus because they're throwing every resource they have at us to cultivate discontent. I won't be happy till I have the latest one of these. So I'm going to start using my energy and my resources and my time and my focus and my plans to get that and to attain it. And what would it look like if I were able to say, you know what? Maybe the one I got is fine. And instead of putting all my resources into that thing, maybe I can step over here and say, you know what? Lord Jesus, how do you want to use these resources? And how do you want to use the energy and the time? What do you want to do through me? That's not going to happen on accident, is it, folks? Not when somebody's spending billions of dollars to get our attention. It's not going to happen on accident. It's a discipline. It's got to be learned. It's got to be cultivated. And this is something Paul had to learn from experience. You know, because he was an up-and-comer in his life before he met Jesus. That's how he describes himself in Galatians chapter 1. You may want to take a look at it. Galatians chapter 1, verse 14, Paul says, I advanced in Judaism. This is before he was converted to Jesus. I advanced in Judaism beyond many among my people of the same age. So, I mean, that's a way of saying I was first in my class. If you look at my peer group, if you look at all the people kind of in my group, my age, I was further ahead than them. I knew what to do. I knew the book. I knew the scriptures. I knew the law. I knew what God wanted. I had a deep sense of vocation. I was connected. I was from the right tribe. You read back through Philippians 3. He's the Hebrew born of Hebrew from the tribe of Benjamin. Kings get born in the tribe of Benjamin. We got a great heritage. Part of the people of God. Look at the law. I'm blameless. The guy said that. <laughs> Talk about somebody who's got all the right stuff on his resume. He's got all the right connections. He's got all the right networks. That's the 
more mentality. I'm doing more. I'm going to be better. I'm going to get there. I'm going to strive. I'm going to be better than everybody else. That's where I'm putting my energy. I'm advancing beyond them. I was far more zealous for the tradition of my ancestors, he says. But then God did something. God called me to proclaim his son among the nations. And all that stuff that he had attained went away. So when Paul says, I know what it is to have a lot, he knows what it is to be an up-and-comer. He knows what it is to have people calling up saying, hey, we think you need to run in the next election because you can win and you can be our guy on the hill. And we're going to put resources to you and you're our man, Paul. That's pretty satisfying, isn't it? But God called me, set me apart to proclaim his son and his glory and his name and his grace and his mercy to the nations. And then we have letters from Paul written from prison. That's the guy who says, I know what it is to have a lot and I know what it is to have little. Christ strengthens me. I'm going to trust everything I've got, all my energy, everything I've got, that he has everything I need. If you read Acts, you read about a guy named Ananias. Ananias is the guy that Jesus called to go talk to Paul when he got converted. Ananias didn't want to go. Maybe you've had an experience with Jesus like that. Jesus says, hey, I got a job for you. You know that guy over there, I want you to go talk to him. Tell him I got plans for him. Tell him I love him. Tell him we're going to change the world. Jesus, I don't want to go talk to that guy. I think I'm crazy. And I says, Jesus, I don't want to go talk to Paul. He kills people like me. <laughs> Jesus says, no, no, Ananias, you don't understand. That power player you know is going to take my gospel to kings and nations. And I will show him, the text says, how much he must suffer for my name. That's Jesus' plan for Paul. And yet Paul can trust that Jesus has his best at heart. No matter what he calls him to do, no matter where he calls him to, whether it's much, little, where it's freedom or imprisonment, wealth or poverty, Paul says, I'm going to trust everything I've got, that Jesus has everything I need. And he's on board with nothing held back. 
cultivating that kind of attitude to life doesn't happen on accident. That discipline we were talking about requires strategies. So we'll spend the rest of our time talking about the strategies. It means cutting some things out and bringing some things in. The first thing is cutting out covetousness. It's one of the big ten, right? Do not covet, the commandment says. And really, contentment and covetousness are on opposite ends of the spectrum, aren't they? If we're content, we're not going to be coveting other people's stuff or their life or whatever it is they put on Facebook. And if we're coveting, it means we're not satisfied with where God has us. Another pastor actually put it on Facebook this week, this definition of covetousness. And he said, covetousness is wanting something so much that I lose my satisfaction in God. There's that satisfaction word again. Are there things out there, and this is the question, if I'm going to develop this discipline of pursuing contentment, even though the world is throwing billions of dollars at me to undermine my contentment, am I going to cultivate the discipline in the power of God's grace through the love of Jesus, the power of the Spirit, if I am, I've got to be asking, are there things in my life that I want so much that I lose my satisfaction in Jesus? And if there are, I need to write them down and name them and eradicate them from my life. And it could be all kinds of things. It could be good things. Some folks might want that promotion so badly that they're never satisfied until they get the next step. All the energy goes there and away from other things. For other folks, it might be a, a vacation. They want it so badly that I'm not satisfied. pastor friend mentioned stunning church growth without much complication. <laughs> this is an issue for preachers too. Did you know you can get so consumed with the church that you lose your satisfaction in God? <laughs> lots of preachers got lots of plans for the churches. <laughs> it's very easy to get so focused and so distracted that we forget to ask Jesus what his plan for his church is. The question is, no matter where I am or where God has placed me, am I satisfied with those circumstances? Knowing that the Lord God who made the heavens and earth can be at work in that place through me for my good transformation and for the good of the people around me. I may not have chosen my circumstances, and I might have wound up in these circumstances because someone else did me wrong, but the question is, here I am, can God, can I be satisfied with what God has for me in this place? That means I've got to guard against covetousness. Man, I sure would like to be over there. I sure would like that one. I sure would like to be doing this thing. All kinds of things get in here. People get dissatisfied with their marriage because something happens and just had a fight with my spouse or 
some, you know, I'm disappointed because this thing happened and it's not going well. And we lose our satisfaction and begin to look for it elsewhere. And a lot of people get hurt. And maybe you've been hurt because something like that happened. When we lose our satisfaction in God, people get hurt, don't they? Such a big thing. Such a big thing. So we've got to guard against those kinds of things. If we guard against covetousness, confess it, name it, guard against it, whatever it is, whether it's material things, whether it's a reputation, relationships, whatever. On the positive side, we've got to begin cultivating gratitude. Take a look at chapter, chapter 4, verse 6 in Philippians. Catch what Paul says. I'll start in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So think about that attitude. Here I am. I've got these circumstances. And Paul says, don't be anxious about your circumstances. And remember the Philippians. I mean, these folks are struggling. They're being persecuted somehow. They're experiencing pain because they're following Jesus. We don't get the details. We just get a word about that reality. They're experiencing internal strife. He's just told Euodia and Sintiki to reconcile, get it together, and stop letting your petty argument disrupt the life of this church. Don't be anxious about the situation where there's a factions in the church and opposition from outsiders. Don't be anxious. Express your gratitude to God. Lord, what do you want to do in this place? How do you want to show the power of your gospel to affect reconciliation when there are debates and divisions in the life of this congregation? God, how are you going to show your glory, giving us the grace we need to persevere in the face of affliction? We want you to work in us. We're grateful, Lord, that you are with us in this time. Reproduce the character of Christ in us, who, by the way, Paul says, is the one who suffered even unto death. So the Philippians are supposed to come to their place of pain, not saying, well, why is God putting us through this? But instead saying, Lord, here we are. We're being opposed because we're following Jesus. Make us like Jesus. Because that's the most important thing. Nothing else matters. Only that. It's going to take them trusting Him, trusting that Jesus has everything they need to sustain them and uphold them and, and strengthen them in that moment of trial and testing when they're tempted to run back to where when things were better, when they're tempted to run over to when it wasn't so tough. They're tempted to go. They want more. They're not satisfied with where the Lord has placed them. And Paul says, trust everything you've got, that He has everything you need. And it takes a heart of gratitude. It's very hard to be complaining to God about your circumstances if you're giving thanks for them. It's very hard. And you'll never feel like it. <laughs> it's a discipline. It's a discipline. The Holy Spirit will give strength, but you've got to respond to that. Engage in the discipline. If you want to cultivate contentment, cultivate gratitude first. Lord, I'm tempted to go put my resources into this new thing. 
But you know what? I'm grateful that I've got this other thing. Thank you. I'm going to resist that and go to this. Gratitude. Paul also suggests that we engage in disciplining our minds. So cultivate gratitude and discipline your mind. Verse 8, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. You know when discontent comes in? When we give ourselves to things that aren't true. You'll be happy if you have this. No, you won't. You might feel good for a little while. Then we have to make that payment. <laughs> it's a myth. Have one of these and you'll be happy. The more we give ourselves to that mentality, the more dissatisfied we become and the more stuff we want. Paul says, whatever is true, whatever is pure, whatever is commendable. I mean, and think about, friends, how much not commendable stuff we take in. How much impure stuff we take in. How much falsity we take in. I mean, just think about, you know, you get home tomorrow evening from work and sit down and rest a little bit, maybe have some dinner and turn on the TV. Pull that piece of paper out where you're keeping up with your satisfaction and begin keeping up with how much commendable stuff comes over the airway. Exactly. <laughs> Not much, probably. <laughs> you know, here I am, I'm watching the show. Is this pure? And if it's not, it's probably going to create discontent in my life. I'm scrolling through social media. Is it commendable? Do I want to click the share button and tell my friends this is worth your time? A lot of people click that share button for things that aren't worth our time. Stunning. <laughs> Anything we send out from the church, feel, feel free to commend that to your friends. Think about it, friends. I mean, just begin to think about all the things that we are exposed to day in and day out, all day long, whether it's the radio in the car or whether it's the billboard on the side of the road for a $100 divorce, whatever it is, is it commendable? Is it good? Is it right? Is it true? Or is somebody trying to take advantage of somebody else to make a buck off their pain? Is it just? Is it worthy of praise? And think about what our lives would be like if we were disciplined in our, so that our minds focused on what is worthy of praise consistently. And isn't it really a question of, does Jesus have my mind? In this moment, is my thought life surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ when my kids are going crazy and shouting at me about something or when my coworkers are telling the boss and blaming me for things I didn't do. And I'm tempted to engage in not commendable things. What would it look like for Jesus to have my mind here when I'm thinking about what I want to do to that person or say about that person or how to get retaliation 
would it look like for Jesus to have all of me in this moment? Well, it might look a lot like Calvary. Because <laughs> that's what happened to Jesus when people said untrue things about him. and Maligned him, and yet his mind was focused in prayer to his Father for us. And he calls us to nothing less. And anything less cultivates discontent. Whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, pleasing, commendable, excellent, and worthy of praise. Imagine how powerful the church would be if we only gave our minds to those things. Paul says, if you want contentment, discipline your thought life. Surrender it to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Last thing, if you want to find contentment, seek the best for others. Verse 17, not that I seek the gift, Paul says, I seek the profit that accumulates to your account. So here he is, he's in prison. And the Philippians have sent some help. Epaphroditus, we've met him before, is the one who brings whatever supplies, food perhaps, uh, a blanket, resources that Paul needs. Because after all, in a Roman prison, it wasn't a three square meals a day kind of gig. No color TV. You get a blanket if you have some people who care enough about you to bring you one. And it's a shameful thing to be in prison, so they might not. (laughs) Because they don't have anything to do with you. So Paul has, I mean, the Philippians are bringing him stuff. And he's grateful for that, and he expresses the gratitude. The thing about the ancient world is, if someone gives you a gift, you get locked in this circle of reciprocity, where you've got to do something for them, and then they do something back for you, and it kind of goes back and forth. And so Paul breaks the circle here. Not that I seek the gift. <laughs> he, doesn't, he acknowledges that they've been kind to him, but he's like, I'm not interested in the gift. That's not what I'm after. I'm interested in what God is doing in your heart. The profit that accumulates on your account. You've cared for me. I have what I need. I'm satisfied. The Lord is good. And you, by engaging in sacrificial ministry to a missionary of the gospel, Paul says, you are becoming like Jesus. That's what he's getting at. Sacrificing yourself for someone else. Christ is reproducing his character in you. Paul says, that's what I care about. That's what I'm grateful for. And all the way through, he is embodying this other-oriented love, this self-giving love. I mean, he could be like, hey, guys, remember all the stuff I did? I came, and I gave my energy, and I taught you, and I was there, and I cared for you. I planted the church. You wouldn't even exist as a group if it weren't for me. Why don't you send me some food? I'm in prison. You could take that attitude. That's not what he says, is it? He's always looking for an opportunity to see Christ formed in his churches because that's the most important thing. love. You want to cultivate contentment? Resist covetousness? Right, covetousness is about me. What can I get out of this? What do I want? What do I need to make myself happy? Paul says, you want to, you want to get rid of that in your life? Find ways to pour your life into others. Start with your family. <laughs> Your spouse, your kids, your grandchildren, your grandparents, that cousin who gets on your nerves. Other-oriented love cultivates contentment. 
and undermines covetousness. All the way around, though, it doesn't come unless we are primarily focused on Jesus. All through the series, the image on the front of the bulletin has been those runner guys. If you got glance at it. Those guys are giving everything they got, aren't they? We've used this image of racers and runners throughout the series because Paul uses that kind of language in Philippians chapter 3 to talk about chasing after Jesus, running a race. It's useful here, too. Image of an Olympian who is completely focused on getting across the finish line. Thoroughly and comprehensively given to the goal. That image of every ounce of energy pressed to the finish line, that's what I want for us. Can we trust everything we've got? Everything that we are... We feel like we're about to fall over because we're so thrown after Jesus. That our feet can barely keep up with our momentum because we are so... Because everything is trusting Him. All of our energy, all of our passion, all of our love, trusting Jesus, that He is sufficient for everything we need. Imagine what Jesus could do through a church filled with people like that. Ah, we don't care about the other stuff. Let them throw their billions of dollars out there. That is not important. That's not what we're interested in. Eyes on Jesus, focused on Him. He is sufficient. He's everything we need. We are passionately pursuing Him with everything we've got. satisfied with that? Can we be satisfied with Christ alone? That's the question as we conclude our time. Am I satisfied with Jesus? Just Jesus. Does Jesus have everything I need when my life is falling Does Jesus have everything I need when people treat me with malice? Does Jesus have everything I need when my marriage is on the rocks? Does Jesus have everything I need when people lie about me, deal falsely with me? satisfied with him. If he were to call me to walk away from everything I've got, would he be enough? 